It's a new year and a new chance for you to make a fresh start with your compliance. For the next 31 days on the FCPA Compliance Report, we're going to be bringing you a daily tip, strategy, or idea that you can use to improve your program. Here's your host, Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. This month's sponsor of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program is Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent, integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit this month's sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. I heard James Doty when he was the acting commissioner of the Public Accounting Oversight Board, or the PCAOB, speak, and he was asked if the board or its subcommittees which handle audit or compliance were a part of the board's financial, excuse me, internal controls. He answered that yes, he believed that one of the roles of uh, either an audit committee, compliance committee, or indeed a full, full board was to act as an internal control. I'd never thought about the board or a subcommittee of the board as an internal control, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this is a key element of any best practices compliance program to have your board as an internal control. In the FCPA guidance, <clears throat> in the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, there are two specific references to the obligations of a board. The first is found in Hallmark 1, which states, within a business organization, compliance begins with the board of directors and senior executives setting the proper tone for the rest of the company. The second is found under Hallmark number three, entitled Oversight, Autonomy, and Resources, where it discusses that a chief compliance officer should have direct access to an organization's governing authority, such as the board of directors, and committees of the board of directors, such as the compliance committee. Further, under the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, a board must exercise reasonable oversight on the effectiveness of a company's compliance program. The Department of Justice's prosecution standards pose the following queries. Do the directors exercise independent review of a company's compliance program? And two, are the directors provided information sufficient to enable the exercise of independent judgment? Doty's remarks drove home to me the absolute requirement for a board participation in any best practices or even effective anti-corruption compliance program. Board liability for its failures to perform its assigned functions in any compliance program is well known. David Stewart, an attorney with Cravath, Swain and Moore, has noted that FCA compliance issues can lead to personal liability for directors, as both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department have been very vocal about their interest in identifying high-level individuals within an organization who are responsible for the tone, culture, or weak internal controls 
that may contribute to or at least fail to prevent bribery and corruption. He added that based upon the SEC's enforcement action against two senior executives at Nature's Sunshine Products, under certain circumstances, I could see the SEC invoking the same provisions against the Audit Committee, or I would add the Compliance Committee members, for instance, for failing to oversee implementation of a compliance program to mitigate the risk of bribery and corruption. It would not be too far a next step for the SEC to invoke the same provision against compliance committee members who do not actively exercise oversight of an ongoing compliance program. Further, the SEC has made clear that it believes the board should take a more active role in overseeing the management of risk generally within a company. The SEC has promulgated Regulation SK-407, under which each company must make a disclosure regarding the board's role in risk oversight, which may enable investors to better evaluate and to determine whether the board is exercising an appropriate level of oversight of risk. If this disclosure is not made, it could be a securities law violation and subject the company to fines, penalties, or even profit disgorgement. I believe that a board must not only have a corporate compliance oversight committee in place, but must actively oversee that function. Further, if a board's business plan includes a high-risk proposition, there should be additional oversight. So, for instance, in the realm of anti-corruption compliance, are you doing business in a high-risk geographic location? Are you doing business with a number of government or state-owned enterprises? Or does your products require some type of government licensing or approval to go to market? So this might mean if you have a department store in certain countries, simply getting your products in may make it high risk. If they're perishable products and you may be subject to uh, bribery and corruption claims at import, that could raise your risk even higher. In other words, there's an affirmative duty for a board to ask tough questions. But it's more than simply having a compliance program in place. The board must exercise appropriate oversight of the compliance program and indeed the compliance function. The board needs to ask hard questions and be fully informed of the company's overall compliance strategy going forward. The board must act as a sand in the shoe of a chief compliance officer. It's there to raise questions. It's there to irritate. It's there to make the chief compliance officer look at areas that he may not have. So a board's oversight is part of effective compliance internal controls. It would follow from this that the failure to do so may result in something far worse than bad governance. Failure to engage in oversight could lead to an FCPA violation, but I would like to emphasize that there may be independent board liability for failure to exercise that oversight. Certainly in the United Kingdom, under the UK Bribery Act, this is a distinct possibility under adequate procedures. If a board does not exercise its uh, oversight function, it could be vicariously liable. So what are the three key takeaways for today? Well, first and foremost, there has to be active oversight. 
there must be a, or at least I would advocate, a board committee dedicated to compliance. I think it should be moved out of the audit committee and have a separate compliance committee so that there can be uh, with, as I previously noted, compliance expertise so that you can bring to bear those precise compliance oversight resources to the compliance function. This active oversight should be documented and uh, available for both regulators or if you're in a shareholder liability case, uh, would be very powerful documentary evidence. The board must take a look at the design of a company's internal compliance controls. You can do this through uh, requesting risk mapping or rather mapping of your internal controls to not only the COSO framework, but the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, <clears throat> six principles of adequate procedures under the UK Bribery Act, the OECD, 13 good principles, a variety of others. But there must be oversight of the design of internal controls. Finally, and I think this is the key takeaway, is that failure to engage in any of the active oversight or other activities I've talked about could be an independent Sarbanes-Oxley violation because you probably don't think of the board as an internal control. But if you don't have effectiveness at board governance over risk and over compliance, that alone could be a failure of Sarbanes-Oxley and lead to company liability. Thank you for listening to this episode of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, where in the month of August, we're going to take a look at the role of the Board of Directors in a Best Practices Compliance Program. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, for sponsoring this month's series. This production of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join me again tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.